Uh, I currently serve here as, at Calvary as one of the elders. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that I am not the senior pastor. I am not the main speaker. Um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a background as to who I am and, and what I'm going to be talking about. In 2003, I started attending Calvary with some friends from college. Um, but I want to back up before that and share with you, I can first see how God started working in my life as a third grader. I was in Phyllis Warland's Sunday School class. So take heart, any that have te taught uh, Sunday School, it sticks with people, uh, the work that you've done. But in Phyllis Warland's Sunday School class, I prayed a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. As a sophomore in high school, I could see the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin uh, against him, against God, while I was at a youth conference. I was broken. I was weeping over my sin and what I had done to my Savior. I asked Jesus to forgive me. I asked him to rescue me from my sin. In college, I started attending a Bible study hosted by a man who, who became a great mentor to me. Ryan was the man's name. He opened God's word. He taught me to look for Jesus throughout the entirety of the Bible. He challenged me and held me accountable to reading his word. He met with me throughout the week over a burger, at a taco shop, anywhere I wanted to meet to open God's word, to ask me to show me what God was doing. That's the picture that I think about uh, in terms of discipleship. Now, while Ryan was being faithful to what God had entrusted him to do, the Holy Spirit was busy transforming me. And as a senior in college, I can vividly recall being confronted with the future, with choices. What am I going to do? Choices about the girl that I was dating. Choices about where I would live. And I remember bowing my knee, submitting myself to the Lord, to Jesus, not only as my Savior, but as my Lord. Since then, I can see how God has directed my path and my career and where I live. The girl that I was dating became my wife. And he's prepared me for a lot of life's ups and downs. He prepared me to have a family. While Katie and I were dating, we talked about a whole lot of things. We talked about likes, dislikes, financial decisions and choices, our ideas. We talked about our relationship with God. We talked about what our future family might look like. We talked about that if, after we were married, uh, we weren't able to conceive, what path would we want to go down? Would we want to pursue medicine? Or would we want to pursue adoption? It was very interesting that God had put us both on the same page, that we, we thought at that point in time that we would click, quickly turn down the path of adoption. I didn't realize it then, but that conversation was very impactful in what God had for us, and it's what puts me up here today. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to spend a lot of our time in verses 3 through 8. I'm going to be speaking out of the NIV 84 version. Ben said, since I'm not a normal pastor, I don't give a lot of messages, do what feels comfortable. This is the version that I grew up reading, and it's what I'm comfortable with, so... NIV is going to be on the screens if you want to follow in the Red Pew Bible. It might be a little bit different, uh, but the, the meaning is the same. So here we go. 
Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So to break down this scripture this morning, I'm going to use basic comprehension school uh, tools. It's what I know. We're going to look at who, what, when, why, and how. Um, never preached a sermon before. Please give me some grace if I stumble over my words or stumble in the transitions. So here we go. The main point of the passage, though, that I want, I want us to see that God has laid on my heart is how amazing beyond our comprehension is the love that the Father has for his children through Christ Jesus. So we're going to start with the who. There are three persons in this passage that we're going to see. We're going to first focus in on God the Father. Seven times throughout this little section of Scripture, the Father is mentioned, starting in verse 3. Verse 3 says, praise to the Father. It says that he has blessed us. In verse 4, he, the Father, has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us for adoption as his sons. And this is his pleasure. Verse 6, it's to the praise of his grace, which he gives through the one that he loves. And in verse 7, the riches of God's grace, that verse 8 says, he lavished on us. So we can see the Father at work throughout this passage. Second person focusing in on is Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it says that we are, God wants to bless us in Christ, that he has chosen us in him, that is Christ. He has predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he has given us grace in the one that he loves, that's Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his, that is Christ's blood. And I bring this up just to show that the Son is actively being the means of the Father's work. And finally, the object of that work, it's us. Verse 1, which is not up there, I didn't read, it says that this is written to the saints, the faithful, so believers in Jesus. Verse 3 says that God has blessed us, that he chose us, that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. He's freely given grace to us. In him we have blessing, and he has lavished his grace on us. We are the recipient of the work. So we've got God the Father doing a work through Jesus Christ on behalf of us. So what's this work? The what? Focusing in on verse 4, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
verse 5, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now when I read that God has chosen us, he's chosen to adopt us, it strikes a really special chord with me. And I don't want this passage to focus in on me or my family, but I'm going to use our experiences to help illustrate it. And I have four sons whom I love dearly. Austin, Ben, Cody, Drew. They're all unique. They're all special. God has uniquely brought each one of them into mine and Katie's lives. Katie, have been, Katie and I have been through the adoption process three times. Each time, God has had his hand in it. But through the adoption process, we've learned a whole lot. We've seen that there are lots of choices. As prospective parents, we had choices to make about the child that we wanted to adopt, that we would adopt. We filled out paperwork, answered questions about this child. We had to answer questions about their gender, his or her race. Would we be willing to adopt based on certain health statuses? Sibling groups. What past traumas could Katie and I handle? There were more choices than we thought were possible about building a family through adoption. There's also choices made by birth parents. In a voluntary adoption, voluntary means that a birth parent has made an active choice to place their child for adoption. There's lots of reasons why a birth parent might choose this finances, their age, future plans that they have, lack of skills, so on. But that's what a voluntary adoption means. It's, it's a voluntary placement uh, of their child for adoption. But in that case, the birth parents have to choose which agency that they want to work with. Sometimes they get to pick which parents they want for their child. They have to choose to give life to their child. And after placement of the child with his or her new family, the new parents have choices of whether to proceed or not with the adoption. In North Dakota, this takes six months. Does the child fit in? Do they cry a lot? Do they push back? Do they snuggle in? Do they adjust well? There's six months to decide, do we want to proceed with this adoption? And the courts have choices, too. Ultimately, they have the final choice to affirm the adoption or to deny it. So when we read here in Ephesians 1 that God chose us, we can know that he set out after us. He knew the answers of our gender, our race, our abilities, or our disabilities. He knew our size. He knew our financial picture. He knew the junk that we would endure. He knew that we would push back against him. But through all of this information that God had that he knew, he chose us. Sometimes this can bristle us. At least it can bristle me. It can make us defensive. It can make us raise that question of, where's my choice? When I think of that, because I often have, I think I'm missing the point. I'm focusing in on myself instead of on my father. Remember how we started and we saw those seven times that the Father has pointed out in this passage? He's the one that's doing the work. We get to rejoice in that. We can rejoice that he has chosen us. 
He has chosen His saints to be His children. We can rejoice that we didn't have to work to be part of His family. As I look at my family, none of my children had a say when Katie and I adopted them. Not one. We chose them. And reflecting on that makes me think in a little different light when I read that God chose us. And I want to circle back around to this topic of his choice and our choice in a little bit when we touch on the how question. But first, let's look at the when. When did God choose us? Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. The ESV, the Red Pew Bibles, they say before the foundation of the world. Now, when a couple chooses to adopt here on earth, it can be for a variety of reasons. It can be the plan A from the very get-go. could be out of necessity. could fall into their laps just out of nowhere and suddenly be before them. Katie and I walked through a season of infertility before adoption became our plan A. We had a different plan A. We were going to get pregnant. But God knew that we needed this trial in order to change our plan A and to put our family together. We're so thankful that our plans were not his plans. God acted through that trial as our loving father. A lot of times our kids think they know best. They think they know better than we do. They have the experience and the wisdom. But like a loving father does, he redirected us to what he knew was best for us and for the children that he had picked out for us to raise. So with God, our adoption as his children has always been his plan A. Before he created animals or fish or birds, before there was a sun or moon or stars, before there were plants, before the sky, before he made dry land appear, before he even said, let there be light, before he set the physics up about gravity and orbit, And all of that, he chose us. Marvel at that. Think about that for a second. From the very beginning, he chose you. It was no accident. It was no fallback plan. It's always been his plan A from the very beginning to adopt us as his children, to choose us to make up his family. How did he accomplish this plan? In adoption, there are costs. There's financial costs that range from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. There's costs on a family. The structure of the family that was changes. It changes to incorporate a new member of the family. There's that commodity of time. It gets spent in new ways. There's less time for myself. There's more time with children, but maybe less time with one particular child. There's also costs on the side of a birth parent, huge costs of love that bring pain in order to make a plan for their son or daughter to become no longer their child, but now to become someone else's child. Looking at how God accomplished our adoption, we need to look back at the who again. Because the who that this passage is talking about will help us understand the how of the adoption, of our being chosen by God, of our being 
blessed by God. We can see that Jesus Christ as the who is also the how of this passage. So consider again, I'm going to go back to the beginning, how we see Jesus in this scripture. Verse 3, we've been blessed in Christ. In verse 4, God chose us in him, that is in Christ. Verse 5, we've been adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. We've been given grace in the one that he loves, that's Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The means of how the Father accomplishes his adoption of us as his children is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews speaks to this. Chapter 9, verse 22. It says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If we jump ahead to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 12, the law is a sh only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would, would have been cleansed once for all. They would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, Here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time the one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. God's plan of payment to pay the cost for our adoption as his children was paid in full by Jesus on the cross. There's no more payment to add. There's no work of ours, no act of ours, no aisle to walk, no prayer that we pray. Nothing. It's finished. Jesus sat down to signify that he had paid it all. This was the only means of how God could and would adopt his children. Matthew testifies to this in Matthew 26, 39 and 42. It's talking about Jesus before he's crucified. It says, going a little farther, he, that's Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, it says, He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, 
may your will be done. In other words, Jesus is saying, is there another way? Is there some other way that we can pay for this adoption of our children? Is there a different payment plan that we can do? And in perfect submission, perfect obedience, Jesus lovingly obeys his dad. There was no other way to pay the cost. There's no other way to forgive our sin, to redeem us, other than through his shed blood. Begs the question, do you believe this? Do I believe this? John 1, 11 through 13 speaks to us about what happens if we believe this. It says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human's decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. See, when we're born into this world, we're born into spiritual darkness. We're born under the power of Satan, as Acts 26.18 testifies. When we believe in his name, the name of Jesus, we cross over from the child of sin and Satan to being a child of righteousness and of God. We've been born again. We're adopted as his children. I mentioned this a few minutes ago about how adoption has costs and its costs on the birth parents. In an adoption, there must be a termination of parental rights in order for new parental rights to be established. A birth parent cannot say, I want to be the mom, but I want you, I'm going to say Katie, she's my wife, but I want you to be the mom too. It, it doesn't work like that. The courts don't allow that. The rights of one have to end in order for the rights of the other to be established. When we believe in Christ and his work on the cross, we're choosing to set aside ourselves, our rights to try and save ourselves, our rights of how we want to live in order to follow him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In Christ... We cross over from death to life. The power that sin had and the rights of Satan on our old lives have been terminated. Now, I need to interject here a little bit because my analogy is hugely flawed regarding birth parents and the termination of parental rights. The rights of birth parents do not lead to death. And birth parents are not the equivalent of the power of Satan. On the contrary, the voluntary termination of a birth parent's rights is an act of love and sacrifice that mimics that of Christ, not of us rejecting our sin. A birth parent that voluntarily ends his or her rights is doing it out of an immense love for their child. They're choosing life. They're choosing something for their child that they do not think that they could provide for themselves. Their gift of grace is a gift of life for a family. And I can testify to this because it's the gift that my wife and I have been given. And it brings me to the why. Why this plan? Why choose to adopt us? When we look at ourselves and the life that we had before Christ, 
wasn't really life, it was death. Romans 3, 10 through 18 paints this picture. It says, as it was written, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if we're dead, why would God choose us? I asked this question at our supper table on, on Friday night. My oldest son, Austin, quickly responded with exactly what the Scriptures tell us. You see it at the tail end of verse 4 of Ephesians 1. It says, in love. It's out of love. A huge, deep love. It's the love that he had for us before the foundation of the world. It's the love that is written about in John 3.16 when God says, For God so loved the world. It's the love that Jesus speaks of in John 13.34 when he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By all this, men, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Sin, love that God chooses to make us holy and blameless before himself. It's in love that he chooses, as verse 3 says, to bless us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. It's love that compels God to freely give us his glorious grace, as we see in verse 6. And in perfect loving wisdom and insight and understanding, he lavishes us with the riches of his grace. It's love that compels a birth mom or a birth dad to make an adoption plan. To lovingly place their son or daughter in a new family. They're showing grace to that child, knowing that they don't have the skills or the means or the resources or abilities to raise him or her as they think they should. And that's like us. Knowing that we cannot redeem ourselves, we believe the Father when he says he loves us and wants to adopt us to be his sons and his daughters, knowing that we cannot pay the price to adopt ourselves. So we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring us into the family of the Most High God, that we too will be children of God. Application. What do we do with this? What do we do with this understanding of God as our Father and how He adopted us? I'm going to bring two applications. first one's a little bit obscure, but it stuck out to me. second one, shouting at us from the Scriptures. First application. Our words matter. Our words matter because they shape how we think about ourselves. They shape how we think about our King and our relationship with Him. Our words matter because they show how we think about ourselves 
how we think about our king and our relationship with him. Look at verse 5. It says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That word adopted there, is it a verb or is it an adjective? He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It's a verb. It tells us the work that God did to make us his sons and daughters. It does not describe us. It's not a descriptive word at all, at least not when we're talking about children. We're not God's adopted children. We're his children. Do you hear that difference? I have four sons. And they're all my sons. They're on equal footing as my sons. There's no difference between them as my sons. How they came into our family is a unique story for each and every one of them. And that's the case for every one of us. Some of us were born in a hospital. Some of us were born in the back seat of a truck. Paul's not here. But we're still sons. Some of us were born in America. Some of us were born in Liberia. We're still children. Some of us were born via C-section. Some through a birth canal. We're still daughters. Some of us were born into our family. Some of us were adopted into our family. Still sons. Still daughters. Our words matter because we each have a unique story of how we came into God's family as well. Some of us were young maybe third graders in Phyllis Worland Sunday School class. Some of us were 10th graders at a Dawson McAllister Youth Conference. Some of us were in a gang. Some of us were hurt by a church. Some of us didn't know where to turn until we were 50 years old and the guy from the gym kept lovingly sharing the gospel with us. But no matter the story, no matter the method, the means is the same. It's Jesus Christ. The result is the same. We're sons and daughters of God. This is another one as to why our words matter. If I ask you, is God your real father? What does that do for you? Does that edify you? Does that raise questions? If you're a mature believer, grounded in your faith, you might very well answer that, yes, I have no other father than God. If you're a young believer, still trying to understand what God has done for you, to make you question your status in the family. I am my children's dad. I am their real dad. I am not the birth dad of each of my four boys, but I am their dad, their real dad. And I pray that people will edify my children with their words. I pray that our curiosity for information will cause us to think about our words and how we can use them to reinforce the families that God has put together, including our church family. The Bible is full of family language. And if God is your father, then you and I are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. Which brings me to the second application. God has built and is building a family. Since we're brothers and sisters in Christ with one father, the second application that I see in this scripture is our response. And that's to praise him. Verse 3 starts with praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul describes 
why we're to praise Him. And in verse 6, he pens again, to the praise of His glorious grace. Paul then describes the means of that, of that grace to us in Christ. And in verse 12, he says, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And he finishes verse 14 with, to the praise of His glory. I want to read that. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. We cannot earn our sonship. God does not desire us to work or repay Him to be His children. Rather, our response is to love Him, to love Him with our praise. He's our Father. We're His sons and daughters. And Jesus Christ has paid the cost for our adoption to be finalized. The Holy Spirit has sealed us, guaranteeing our standing as children of God. He's our Dad. We praise Him. We thank Him, and we love Him. And pray with me. Father, Abba Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You that in Your foresight, You knew that our sins would need to be covered, that they would need to be paid for, and that the only payment was your Son, your perfect, one and only begotten Son, and his death on the cross. Father, when we believe in his name, what a glorious thing. Thank you, Lord, for this church family, for the encouragement to each other. Father, I pray that we would be a body that uses our words to build each other up, and that we would praise you for who you are and for what you have done. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.